Amen. All right, so, <clears throat> um, so God, God has impressed upon me. <laughs> so I'll give you a little bit of a background. I'm going to spend all my time giving you background and actually not preach, but that's okay. Um, so for the last year, year and a half, I have been, this is going to sound funny, I have been longing to preach about lament. I've been longing to be in a grumpy mood and say it's biblical. Um, and that's coming because I think that there is a space for lament in the Christian's life that we don't, we don't give um, uh, enough attention to. It's important for us to understand what that actually looks like. But, but as I was praying about it and planning it and laying it all out, uh, it was a, probably two, <clears throat> maybe three months ago, God impressed on me that what we should be doing instead for the next four weeks is walk through this, which is what is the gospel? So please understand and hear this. This isn't going to be about the nuances of a definition. It's not going to be about the argument behind what language we choose to use. It's going to be about what matters most. So when I talk about the gospel, this is what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says this. Look at verse 1. I want to make clear for you, my brothers and sisters, the gospel that I have preached to you, which you have received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. And then, then the rest of 1 Corinthians 15 continues on and, and makes a dramatic, profound case about the resurrection, and we'll look at that some other time. But, but this morning, what I want you to understand is that that is what is most important, that, that Christ died, he was buried, and he rose again. And what does that mean for each and every single one of us in here? Well, it means this. You have to respond to that extension of an invitation, to that extension of an offer of grace that God is making to you through His Son, Jesus Christ. Well, I already responded. Cool, cool, that's, that's good to know. Okay, how did you respond? Well, I, um, I don't do drugs. Nice. I don't, I don't sleep around. I, I don't swear out loud. Okay. Well, what do you do? I mean, that's a lot of don'ts. Well, I go to church, and the swearing thing, I use the Christian words like, Heck and darn. Or my favorite, Farfignugan. Um, the gospel isn't about what you're not doing. The gospel isn't what you are doing. The gospel isn't about being a good person. The gospel isn't about going to church. It's not about coming up with alternative curse words. It's not about appearing different to your coworkers or to your friends. It's not about... Being pro-life. The gospel is not about traditional marriage. The gospel is not about writing injustices. It's not about the, the transformation of culture. Bringing it back to the good old days. The gospel isn't about health. It's not about personal well-being. It's not about relief of stress. It's not about finding your inner strength. It's not about personal happiness. The gospel is the good report that God has addressed our greatest problem and that he's invited us into a relationship with him. All those other things, well, those are good results of the gospel. Preliminarily looking at the results of the survey that we did, which we're going to talk about a lot more in the weeks to come, and we're thankful for almost, I mean, we, we way blew past what our goal was and expectation was for that. 
We have one of the most moral churches in the country, is what the, an, the analyst, analyst, there we go, said when we were talking to them as a result of the survey. You guys are moral, squeaky clean. You're right, so why are you laughing? You're laughing because the same reason I'm laughing, aren't you? You're like, <laughs> yeah, I'm giving myself a 10 on that one. Now, and I don't want to make light because I do think we live in a very moral county, which quite honestly makes preaching about the gospel very difficult. Because the gospel is really addressing a great problem that quite honestly, when you live a moral life and live in a moral county, you don't think you struggle with. <laughs> and that's hard. So turn a couple pages, three or four pages over, Second Corinthians chapter 5. Second hmm. Corinthians chapter 5, there, there's a lot there, and I don't have time, so I'm actually going to jump right in the middle of a thought, which is never a good approach, but timing-wise, I kind of have to do it. Um, ah, I'll start in verse 16. Paul says this, from now on then, we don't know anyone from a worldly perspective, even if we've known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know him in this way. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. See, the new has come. Everything's from God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed that message of reconciliation to us. So therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ because God is making his appeal through us. So we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the greatest problem that we have is being addressed right here. It's the fact that we need reconciliation. We need reconciliation with God, and that comes as a result of our greatest problem, which is trespasses. Now, trespasses is just a, another word for sin. It carries the idea of going someplace that you are not supposed to go, right? No trespassing. Any of you? No, I don't want to ask that. Ever trespass. Don't, don't raise your hand. Um, <laughs> but that's the idea of, of, of of sin. You're going to a place you're not supposed to go. How, how, did, how, how did this happen? I mean, what is the story of sin? And, and sometimes I'm like, man, don't do that again. They know this. But you know, we, we need to anchor down in this. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, we get to see the, 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 the beautiful creation of God. God who is so mighty, right? He's so mighty. He speaks to nothing and something appears. That's amazing. I speak to my kids. They don't even respond. God is so mighty. He speaks to nothing, and boom, things start appearing. He is so very God that he doesn't build and like accumulate raw materials and then fashion and form and build something. He creates the raw materials. And when he's done, it is so good. I mean, the things that God... Just wrap your head around for a minute. The things that God created just because. That really are just... Just there, because, because. It should blow your mind. I mean, sunrises. Whoa! Sunsets are far better because it's not as early in the morning. So sunsets, right? Beaches with white sand and just pristine 
clear water. I mean, he made some things incredibly enjoyable that he did not have to make enjoyable for us, right? Food, he didn't need to make that taste good. Thank God he did. It'd be really bummer to sit down to a big juicy steak and be like, oh, this is so boring. But instead, you sit down and you're like, this is amazing. He didn't need to make food taste good. He didn't need to, to make relationships and laughter so enjoyable. He didn't need to make naps so fulfilling. But he did because God's a good God and he wanted to give us good gifts so that when he gives us these good gifts, which, by the way, important to know, he didn't owe us. God didn't have to give us anything. He didn't owe us any of those good gifts. But he gave us those good gifts so that as we are enjoying them, as we are laughing together with our loved ones, as we are napping under the sun, as we are eating a big, fat, juicy steak or whatever kale thing you want to eat, knock yourself out, <laughs> Kale's a result of the fall, just saying. But when you're, when you're eating this stuff, the reason he has given it to you is that you don't stop and be like, oh, this steak is it. No, it's supposed to be like, you are such a good God that you would give this to me to enjoy, and you didn't even have to. That's how good God is. But then you get to Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3, there is this shift from understanding that God's given us these good things even though he didn't have to. He owes us nothing. You get to Genesis 3 and the underlying theme is God owes me and he's holding out on me. That's the whisper of Satan in Eve's ear, right? And so what Eve ends up doing is something that you and I do every day. We fall for the lie that Satan's throwing at us that we know better than God, that, that God just wants good things for himself. And, and what we end up doing is is we allow our, our hearts to believe that God's actually holding out on us. And so from that very moment when Eve believed the first lie to our moment even today, we are guilty of elevating the things that God has created to a place that we worship those things. We worship relationships. We worship naps. That's called laziness. We worship our food. That's gluttony. We, we, we worship all of those things. In fact, what we end up doing is we worship ourselves, and in so doing, we demean God. We, we, we refuse to acknowledge him, or, or we fail to acknowledge him. And as Romans 1 says, we worship what he's given us instead of, instead of him. That leads to alienation. When we refuse to give God the the honor and glory and praise and acknowledgement that he deserves, we are then alienated from him. And between us now is a, is a hostility. We know that, don't we? Even if it's not an anger hostility, it could be a hurt hostility. We experience and feel that brokenness of dysfunction all the time. There, there are people sitting in this room right now, and you feel the weight and the discomfort of your brokenness. The gospel, the gospel is the news that God sees your discomfort, he sees your brokenness, he knows it, he feels it, and instead of eviscerating you because of your rebellion against him, he comes towards you. 
He comes towards you not as a bully on the playground. He comes towards you. You're guilty. You've sinned. We're all guilty. We've all sinned. Oh, I haven't murdered. That's great. He who violates the law in one point is guilty of it all, James tells us. So every single one of us has sinned. Every single one of us is guilty. And instead of him coming towards us just to squash us like the bugs that actually we deserve to be treated that way, he comes towards us. Well, while we were still sinners, God did something for us, right? What did he do? How did he move toward us? Verse 21, it tells us. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. The movement of God toward us The context of the story of the good news, right, is centered on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, don't mistake it. It's not just the story of the cross. The gospel is not just the story of the cross. And I don't want to bind any consciences here with this. I'd rather bind it with the word of God. So please hear this as, this is just extra, extra frank stuff, okay? I don't know how many of you did or didn't go watch back in the day the Passion of the Christ. I don't know how many of you did or didn't for what reasons or you did or what reasons you didn't. I'm not saying it's right or there's no moral judgment on this, okay? I'm just using it as a picture because I think it's important for us to grasp. When you look at the Passion of the Christ, if nothing else, what we left that movie with was a greater understanding of the torment, the brutality, the gross violence that was inflicted on Jesus Christ and what he endured. But if you watch the passion of the Christ without any context, and all you watch is this man being spit upon and slapped, having a crown of thorns placed on his head, beaten beyond recognition, dragged up to the top of a hill, nails piercing his hands and his feet as people scorned him. If you watch that without context, what you walk away with is... That is nothing but foolishness. It's simple brutality. I mean, you might feel pity. You might feel sorrow. But without explanation as to why it's occurring or what the results are going to be, there is no good news. There is no gospel there. What you need is the context. What you need is the story. What you need is an understanding of why that was happening and what it leads to. That's, that's the whole Old Testament focus. And I make fun of it and I got convicted of this. I, it was one of those. <laughs> All right. So you, you, you probably assume this, but I'll say it. I talk to myself sometimes, <laughs> particularly when I'm studying. And so Tuesday, I am, I am blowing through this, and I'm like, yeah, here's a picture of it, here's a picture of it, here's a picture of it. And I realized all of my pictures were coming out of the book of Leviticus. And I was like, oh, man, Lord, I'm sorry. I make fun of the book of Leviticus all the time. That's the book. I jump on it, like, how's your through the Bible in a year program going? Have you made it through Leviticus even once? Even on the restart 42 times that you did this year? Nope. Okay, moving along, just skip over to 1 Samuel. Don't worry about it. And, and and in reality, that's a wrong perspective, and I'm, I'm, that's, that's to my shame, that is sin. Leviticus is filled with pictures, shadows of what is to come, and we've got to be able to grasp those and understand those and see those. Leviticus tells us what the cost of our sin is. Now, I know you read it and you're like, it's such a foreign culture and a foreign idea. Chapter 1, chapter 2 alone, you're like, i got to give a dove for What? But you get to Leviticus chapter 4, 
And what you find is the description of something called the sin offering. It's really important for you to catch this this morning. The sin offering. The sin offering was an offering that was brought by a person who had sinned, although unintentionally, and then later on down time found out that they had sinned unintentionally. And so they were to bring this sin offering. They're supposed to bring a lamb that had no spot, no blemish. It was perfect. It was, and so they would bring it to the priest. The priest would then slaughter this lamb outside of the city, spill its blood, burn it up completely. It's not something that you hope we install here at Uniontown, is it? The bottom of the hill, drop off your lambs. You can come up to church by the time you're leaving. We'll have a barbecue. I mean, that's kind of what happened with the sin offering. You have a guilt offering, the peace offering, all these different things. You get to Leviticus chapter 16, and there's this other day that is mentioned. On top of all these offerings that you're giving, there is one specific day when the high priest is going to to bring a a bull and a ram for he and his family, and he's going to slaughter both of them. He's going to drain their blood. He's He's going to offer them on the fire. Then he's going to leave. He's going to go and he's going to ceremonially bathe. He's going to ritualistically bathe himself. He's going to put on this whole new outfit, a new turban, it says in Leviticus chapter 16. And then then, then he's going to have two goats brought to him. He's going to lay his hands on the head of one goat, confess the sins of the entire country, take that knife and slit its throat and allow its blood to pour out. He's going to walk to the other goat. He's going to lay his hand on its head. He's going to confess the sins of Israel. And a man is going to take that goat into the wilderness and, hey go! And the goat's going to take off and run away. And what God is trying to get them to see is that this one goat whose blood was spilled absorbed the wrath of God for the people of Israel. This other goat who ran off into the wilderness, well, he carries away the sins of the people of Israel. And yet they had to do it every year. Over and over. See, what, what you're seeing are shadows of this moment in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. What you're seeing are shadows of what happened on the cross. Now see, with that sin offering, <laughs> the unblemished lamb that came and was slaughtered for the sin of the people, there was a reason it was unblemished. It was so that no one, including the priests or the one offering, could possibly imagine for a moment that the death that this animal was dying was its own fault. The goats that were brought, neither one of them was guilty. See, the shadows of this moment in 2 Corinthians 5 and in the cross tell us that there is coming a day where God is going to provide a sacrifice. There is going to be a substitute. Forgiveness is going to be offered, and it's going to be offered based on the unblemished nature of the substitute, not the morality of the one who needs forgiveness. I skipped this for time, but I, I think I'm going to go back to it just because in Exodus chapter 3, nope, sorry, Exodus chapter 12, um, the people of Israel are coming out of Egypt, and, and we're on the 10th plague at this point, right? And God gives the plan. I'm gonna, the angel of death is going to pass over. And so to, to, to preserve the life of the firstborn, what you must do is again an unblemished lamb or sheep. You are to spill its blood. You are to take the blood and you're supposed to paint it on the door jam. 
And the death angel is going to pass over that night. And, and any home that has the blood, the angel will pass over. But if the home doesn't have the blood, then the firstborn's life will be required of them. Do you know that, that the, the, the morality of the person sitting inside the home had nothing to do with the fact if the angel of the Lord passed over or not? It could be the most moral person that ever walked the face of the earth or the most immoral person. It could be the, 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 the vote-the-line Republican or vote-the-line Democrat. It didn't matter. The blood is what saved them. Yet another shadow of what was to come in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ became sin for us. Please, when you read that, let me, let me try to um, help just a bit. Jesus didn't become suddenly a sinful person. Okay? It wasn't that Jesus was on the cross and all of a sudden he became rebellious and angry and greedy and all of the sins that you and I struggle with, all of a sudden he is the sinner. No, in fact, he, and through all of the things he went through and endured, he remained faithful. He remained righteous. What happened was he was given the treatment that our sinful record deserves. He received in his body what is called the reflex of God when he sees sin. When God sees sin, I, I've heard this growing up, and he used to be like, oh, I get it. God would see sin and be like, no, it's sin. And he'd run the other way, because that was the type of Christianity that I grew up in. You'd run away, no, I don't want to know. It's, it's going to get on me. Well, no, 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 no. The reason that God can't have anything to do with sin is because if sin comes into his presence, the very reflex of God goes and murders it. Jesus absorbed the full reflex of God for your sin. The full wrath of God for your sin. It wasn't his death to die. It was yours. So in this way, Jesus became our sin offering for us. He willingly gave himself to death, even death on the cross, because of our sins. He, he took the guilt of our sins upon himself. Why? What purpose does that serve? Well, for the forgiveness of sins, yes, but for so much more. The, the verse finishes, and I love, I love when Scripture gives us the clues. Why? So that, okay, he gives us the reason. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that in Jesus Christ we could be given this new standing before God. So that God would look at us in a totally different way, and as a result, our relationship with him is, is reconciled. And the standing that he is going to give to us is righteousness. So if you trust Jesus, you trust Jesus, and only Jesus, Whatever sins you've committed, whatever sins you may commit, they're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. But I think sometimes we can be like, okay, so I need all this forgiveness because I keep sinning, and I sinned a lot before, and Jesus poured his blood out and saved me. All right, okay, I need to keep going back. Like, I need your forgiveness. Oh, I, did, I need your forgiveness. Oh, I did it. So, so here's the beautiful thing. Because you are being given the righteousness of God, it's not as if you're going to be viewed by the angels as that guy who just keeps coming up and asking for forgiveness. Now, verse 17 tells you you're viewed as a new creation. One that is righteous. Your fundamental, the fundamental change of status when you receive Christ. God will then view you as if you've never sinned. But even better, he views you as if you've always done what's right. You are declared Righteous. Now, some important point to make here. Doesn't mean righteousness has been infused into you at the moment of salvation. As if one minute you're a horrible human being, 
And then you trust Jesus, and suddenly you're sinless and totally sanctified, and you're fluttering around like angels, and you sound like a Shakespearean actor who can't stop speaking the King James Bible. Because I'm righteous, right? So therefore, well, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken it. No. It's not infused into you. It's imputed to you. That means the instant that you believe that you're a sinner and that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came to offer the gift of forgiveness, who came to offer the gift of reconciliation to us, in the moment you confess Him as Savior with your mouth to His ears, your legal standing, your legal name, your position is forever changed. Because He took the penalty you were supposed to take. He bore in His body the wrath of God so that you didn't have to. And in exchange, he gave you his perfection. Now what Jesus has done for you demands a response. There's really only two responses. The first is, nope. I'm going to make a go of this on my own. I think I got this figured out. And the second is, okay, I agree with God about who I am and who he is. And I'm leaning on Jesus with with nothing else in my hand. I have no other hope of reconciliation with God. I have no other hope of of eternal life with God. No other hope. I am coming to Jesus empty-handed. I've got nothing else. I am laying my hand on his head with all of my sinfulness. It's, It's Jesus or I die. That's what it means to believe in him. It's Jesus or I die. You know what the good news is? The tomb is empty. You know what that means? That offering he made for you more than covered your sin. In fact, there's enough to go around for everybody. If you were to continue reading 2 Corinthians 6, and I'm just going to hit one more verse and be done. God is speaking, and he's quoted here in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. God says, at, at an acceptable time, I listened to you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. It, it's God recurring or, 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 or re-saying some of the things he's done for Israel in the past. And what Paul does, he jumps on that. And he says, listen, people, you've got to understand, God is waiting to listen to you. He's waiting to help you. And he continues by saying, now now is that acceptable time that God is talking about. Now is the day of salvation. So, so what I want to do this morning is I want to invite you not to respond to what I've said, but to respond to who God is, to respond to who Jesus is, to respond to what Jesus has done for you. Do you know the gospel like that? Do you know what it is to put your faith in him, to be recreated by Jesus, to have your sins completely forgiven, to have your relationship brought back together with God? Do you know what it's like to stand boldly in the presence of God without flinching? If you don't, if you haven't made it your own, then I'd encourage you to do that right now where you are. Just a a simple prayer of belief. There's no magic mantra, okay? There's no special person you have to talk to in order to get salvation. Uh, There's no... Uh, signals, like you got to throw out there, like if I go one hand up, one hand up, one hand up, both hands up, I'm saved, yes. But, but honestly, sometimes we behave like that's true, don't we? 
It's like, if I don't do it right, then I'm in trouble. No, no, no. Let me explain to you what doing it right is. Jesus, I'm a sinner, and you, you're the Son of God who came to bring redemption to me. I need you. Jesus, save me or I die. Now, you don't have to do it quite as loud as I just did it. But that very simple prayer of faith, make Jesus yours. Or better, make yourself his. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and then then we're going to stand together, and we're going to end our service. And I'm going to invite you that if you've said yes to Jesus, or you have questions about Jesus, or you want to you want to bounce this around with somebody, you just want to pray with somebody, I'm going to invite you to come forward right here to this front corner, and we'll have folks here who are going to pray with you. Now listen, when you come forward, there is, again, there is no magic in it. We're not going to take a picture of your face and throw it up on the screen, okay? We're not going to do anything crazy like that. We simply want to walk alongside you and help you figure out what it means to truly believe. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you. That we have a Savior, Jesus Christ, That we have one who has come to fulfill the the cost of our sin. To pay the penalty of our debt. To rescue us. To ransom us. To free us. So thank you. And I pray that you would work in each of our hearts. I pray that those of us who just cling to other things, that we would release those and hold on to only Jesus. And Lord, I pray for those this morning here who who don't know Jesus, I pray that in this moment that they would simply pray out the simple prayer of faith, Jesus, I'm a sinner. You're the Son of God who came to heal me, to ransom me, to rescue me. I I lean on you and only you. I'm not trusted in anything else. So God, I pray you would give courage, confidence, and boldness to the person who is just starting their walk with you now. We love you, Lord. We're thankful that we have a Savior who loves us and loved us enough to die for us. It's in his matchless, wonderful name I pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand?